just had one in FedEx building in, outside Indianapolis. There was one in Atlanta a few weeks ago, as well as some more racial shootings and racial issues. And I just want to, at this point, pray. Uh, I want to pray as a congregation for peace, pray for comfort for these families, and pray that God would move and do things that we said he's a way maker. Only God can turn these things around. And so, but he can only do that as we pray, as we seek him and we call upon him. So, Father, we come to you, first of all, it must grieve your heart beyond what we can begin to imagine, to see the destruction of lives, to see the, the shooting and taking of innocent lives, and to see the hatred and the prejudice that's still so alive in this nation and is brought to light through incidences that are, that are broadcast across our, our, our media. We pray, first of all, for, for healing for the families, Lord, that have lost loved ones, and you, would you bring comfort to them as, on, as only you can. We pray for those people that are in leadership, that you tell us to pray for them, Lord, that are in charge of those areas, the, the, the cities, the states where these things are happening, that you would give them wisdom and boldness to speak what's right in your eyes. And we pray most of all for your church, because your church alone has the answer to all of these things, that we'd wake up and discover why we're here and that you would give us the boldness that we need to speak and the boldness that we need to act. And Father, it is only your grace that holds back your judgment upon this nation and upon this world at this time. And Father, in this time of grace, when you're holding that back, we pray for your spirit to be poured out to awaken us to righteousness and truth, to awaken us to grace and mercy and love, and to awaken your people that we would do what you put us here to do. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. And amen and amen. Well, while we're praying, let's pray for the message because it needs a lot of prayer. I need it. Father, we come to you now to seek your truth, to seek your word. Only you have the answer to the problems of mankind. And Lord, as we look over our news today and yesterday and this week, and we become overwhelmed at the, the, the vastness of the problem, the vastness of the destruction, the vastness of the hatred. And our, our government tries as best they can with legislation, but it cannot change the hearts of people. Because this is a moral issue. This is a spiritual issue, Lord. And man cannot of himself change the hearts of men. Only you can by the power of your spirit. So, Father, as we begin to look today at the answer that you have, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, that you would, we would see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. Father, I ask you to strengthen our hearts so that we may be open to hear things we may not want to hear. Uh, Father, I ask you to, 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 to bind up every, every spirit that would try to distract us from hearing what you want to say to us today. And may we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to grasp and receive what the Spirit wants to say to the church today. And for that, we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen and amen. As I was looking this week over some of the issues and some of the things that have been happening, and I have to look at them. I get to look at them from a perspective that, that you don't really. Because I'm often the one that's in the middle of a lot of the disputes. 
I've got people that come to me or email me and say, would you, you know, take a stand on this issue? And then in that same block of emails, I get somebody taking just the opposite stand. And I get these things going back and forth. And I, I follow some pastors online and they'll take different positions. And it's like, and I'll be very frank, I got the other day in my prayer time, I said, God, I'm I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. I can't stick my head in the ground, which I'd like to, and ignore it. But I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength, and I don't have the words. And I felt the Lord say, but I do. I have the answer. And he spoke one word to me. So Wednesday night I announced I was going to begin to talk today. I was going to tell you the answer. Do you have it up there? I have the answer. Not just the answer, but the answer to every problem. It reminded me of, some of you are young, too young to remember this, but remember Johnny Carson, one of his favorite things was he would have, a, he would have, an, he would have an answer. <laughs> he would give the answer, and then he'd open the question. I think that was the way he did it. So, so since I boldly declared I was going to tell you the answer, I have been living in fear and trepidation, hiding out of my house. <laughs> No, it's like, God, why did I say that? It's like, it seems bold and preposterous. It seems foolish. Can there be a simple answer? Well, there is. But the answer goes back to the problem. And that's kind of what reminded me of Johnny Carson. We try to come up with answers without ever looking at and facing what's the problem. And the way God designed me, and part of it's because I was a lawyer, Lawyers want to go to the foundation of the issue. I have to know when I stood before that judge what the law was. I can't just argue to him what I think is right or wrong. I can't even appeal to him what he thinks is right or wrong. The only standing I have for him is to go back to what the law says because his responsibility is to apply that law to the facts in my client's case. And so it trains my mind to go back to the root, the foundation of things, because so often we're trying to solve problems without ever knowing what the real problem is. I remember years ago when some of you, you men will remember uh, Edwin Lewis Cole, his men's ministry, and he would talk about uh, people praying for the wrong thing, and we still do that. You get into financial trouble, people pray for money. I need more money, God. The reason I'm in trouble is I don't have enough money, I don't have a big enough income. And he says, no, what you need is wisdom. So often what we're asking for is not the answer because we really don't recognize what the problem is. Well, pastor, what's the problem so we can find the answer? I don't know. The only way I can know it is to find out what God says the problem is. So you and I can have our opinions. And we're going to talk about this down the road, about the difference between divisiveness and disagreement. There's a critical difference. You can be in disagreement and be unified. Married couples do that all the time. But when you become divisive, you create a separation, a break that requires a healing before you can ever come together in agreement. And that's the fruit, one of the fruits of this problem that we're going to talk about this morning. And so I lost my point, but that was good anyway. Oh, the problem. Only God, so I can have my opinion, you can have your opinion. But they're just our opinions. By the way, God doesn't have an opinion. He's right. 
I should have gotten a better answer from that. He's right. You can have your arguments with him. You can have your disagreements with him. But when the end comes, he's still right. He's still God. Because he knows everything. And when we settle that, that God's always right. And whenever I don't agree with God, I'm always wrong. So if I want to be right, I've got to go agree with God. Some of you have been married a while, you figured this out. <laughs> if you want to live a happy life, you've got to agree with her. <laughs> I should have gotten a better reaction to that. We're living with overwhelming problems that seem overwhelming. Because there seems to be no answer that can bring us together. We're dealing with serious issues of social and legal injustice. We're dealing with um, issues of abortion and a woman's right, her reproductive rights. Conflicts now between the rights of, I've got to get all these initials right, LGBTQ and the church. There's a conflict there. Does that mean we just dismiss everybody that's LGBTQ and we just stand up for our rights? What do we do? How do we resolve that conflict? How does God call us to resolve that conflict? These are issues that divide our nation right now. Not just this nation, many nations. But I'm more concerned because these are issues that divide His church. So it's hard to believe that there could be a simple answer. It's hard to believe because we see these issues as so complicated and because there's such emotional, such emotional investment in these issues. But God's Word teaches a very simple answer. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's the foundation for the answer, let's put it that way. And so the problem is this, I'll tell you right up front, many of you are not going to like this answer. In fact, I'm counting now because next Sunday we may not have quite the same attendance. Many of you are not going to like this answer. And I will confess, I don't like the answer either. Some of you are not going to get it. And that's okay. But of course, we're not going to end the discussion today. If you don't get it right away, don't throw the answer out. Because the answer is from the Word of God. Because I'm going to go down to the foundation of things. And we don't deal with things at their foundation. We deal with things at the emotional issue. We deal with things at the level of the fruit. But God deals with the root. So when God came to redeem your life, He didn't say, here, clean your life up. He dealt with the root of the problem, which was your very nature. Because you couldn't change your fruit until God changed your root. So it's vital that we can go and understand what the root of the problem is. So if, if you're still trying to deal with the fruit issue, you're missing it. Because that will never change until the root changes. And only the church, His church, has the root that can change the fruit that's wrong in this nation. And not only that, it's our own personal lives. This, doesn't just, this problem doesn't just affect our nation because our nation, is, our nation is a reflection of our individual lives, of marriages, 
of families, of, of workplaces, of every type there's a relationship. There are many of them that are broken and broken down, and even in good relationships, this root is still often there. So what are, when we get mad at society, but it's just a reflection of us. And the church, above all things, is supposed to be a reflection of Christ to a world that's confused and lost. But the church is so often simply a reflection back of the world itself, which is why they don't respect us and why they don't listen to us. We don't want to hear of these issues in terms of God's answer. But the result is, until we're willing to do that, we're going to struggle with the futile hope that somehow we're going to come up with an answer that's going to solve all this. And apart from God, we will not. So the answer comes by understanding what the source of the problem is, and it lies in one decision. And that's what we're going to look at today. To do that, we're going to go back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. That's what the word Genesis means. It's the book of beginnings. And the, the root of every problem is in this first few chapters of this book, and the root of every answer is in the first few chapters. In fact, the root of everything God does with man is somewhere in the book of Genesis because it is the book of beginnings. So let's look at what God... This is from God's perspective. This is how God created things. If if you ever want to know what God's will is, there's three places to look in the Bible. Because it's to look where God was able to do what He wanted to do without man involved messing it up. In the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, we see how God created things. The way God created them was the way He wanted them to be. The second place you look is when God took on flesh and walked among us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do what I see my Father do. I only speak what I hear my Father speak. And the third place is when God recreates it all over again and brings it back down here. Those are the only places where you can see God's will carried out without man's involvement in it and Satan's involvement in it. So let's begin to look at this. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he formed. Stop there a second. No, go back. I want to talk about what the word Eden means. The word Eden, E-D-E-N, is the Hebrew word which means a place of pleasure and delight, or paradise. And we often get this image of God that He's a stern taskmaster trying to keep things away from you. He wants you, He doesn't want you to accumulate anything. He doesn't want you to enjoy your life. But look at what He created here. He created this beautiful garden for them, and it's called a place of pleasure and of delight. God's not against pleasure when you do it in the context that He gives it to you. And there he put man whom he formed. Verse 9. Out of the ground of the, Lord, the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that's pleasant to sight 
and good for food. This is a time of year when we see the trees begin to come out again. I just love it because like it's a sign of, huh, spring's here. I, it's, it's a faith statement right now, but it's a sign, spring is here. Spring is coming. It's pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life, which is in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll go back there in a minute. Okay. So God puts them in this garden, a place of pleasure and delight, and God sets... The only thing He mentions of all the things He planted there are two trees. One is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a place of peace and of harmony. And God created it for His creation, man, to enjoy. Notice again, it's the tree of life and the tree, not of good and evil, but of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's go down to verse 15. And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to tend it and to keep it, gave him a job. And the Lord suggested to man out of, no, no, the Lord commanded. He commanded. He commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Wouldn't you be like to told you can eat anything you want? That's paradise, isn't it? (laughs) But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Stay there a second. We're going to break this down. So what is God doing here? God has established this place of freedom for them. He says, freely enjoy everything that I have put here. Freely enjoy it. But then he sets a boundary. What do boundaries do? Boundaries, first of all, remind us that we don't own everything. When somebody else establishes a boundary for you and says, you can have, but don't go there. That's a reminder you're not God. Somebody has exercised authority over you. Secondly, God establishes boundaries to protect us. It's not because God doesn't want you to have fun. It's because God knows how He made us. God knows, because He's the one that created us. He knows, well, I've got a, I've got a car that I bought last year, and, and, and I'm one of these tech guys. I've got to figure everything out. So I go through the manual, I go pe- playing around with things, and there are times that gets me in trouble. Because I, I, want, I want the car to do things that the manufacturer didn't design it to do. So my car has an off-road feature. It just it says, don't use it off-road. <laughs> it's just to impress for men that feel macho, I guess. So there are limitations on what this vehicle would do. I'll give you a good example. Years ago, when we were moved back from Oklahoma from Bible school, I bought a car out there, a used Subaru. It had four-wheel drive. In Oklahoma, you don't need four-wheel drive. It just, where we were, it doesn't snow except rarely. 
we got back here in the middle of winter in a really tough winter. And so I was having fun driving this thing through the snow until one day I decided to drive it over a snowbank because it's a four-wheel drive Subaru. It'll go through anything. Isn't that what the commercials say? I discovered it was not designed to go over snowbanks because four-wheel drive doesn't do you any good when you're hung up on the top of a snowbank and all four wheels are spinning. So the point is there were limitations to what that four-wheel drive vehicle was capable of doing and Subaru who manufactured it knew what the limitations were and somewhere in that owner's manual were the limitations of what that vehicle was capable of doing and I suggest to you here's the owner's manual. God does not design man with the capability of handling the knowledge of good and evil on his own. Why wouldn't God give us that? Because as long as we are obedient to God, He handles the knowledge of good and evil. And so the place of protection against good and evil that we can't handle the knowledge of is up underneath God's authority and obedience to Him. And then goes on to say, and if you, for in the day you violate my commandment, in the day you try to partake on your own of the knowledge and good and evil, which I did not design you to handle, what, there's a consequence to that. In, you shall surely die. What does that mean? Well, it's not good. Actually, in the Hebrew, it means in dying, you shall die. It meant immediately a separation from God. And we'll see why in a minute. And then the process of the physical fruit of that death, so the root now is there's a separation from God. Their living connection with God is broken. Why? Because God's angry at them? No, they broke it. They've now separated themselves from Him as their God And we'll see what's going to happen. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Everybody okay so far? All right. Verse 25 describes the relationship that they had in this state. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now on the surface of that, it says, okay, they didn't wear clothes. That's, that's, you know, I'm I'm glad we do. But the reason you're glad we do is because of what happens afterwards. What this is saying is far more profound than just that they didn't have clothes on. They were totally unaware of self. For all of you to be sitting here this morning with no clothes on and be at peace, you have to be totally aware of me and not aware of yourself. They were so wrapped up in who God was, is so totally absorbed in His glory and His majesty and His love. And they were so caught up in this. See, God created a perfect relationship with them. That's why He made them to begin with. That's why He made you. For a relationship with you. And God wanted no barriers, no hindrances, nothing to interfere with that relationship, that communion, that sharing back and forth. 
So he made them. They had no sense of sin. They had no sense of themselves at all. They were just totally lost in who God is. And God was totally lost in who they were. You get a little glimpse of that in Jesus' relationship with his Father. It was this mutual admiration society. The Father kept saying, at least on three occasions, See my boy? That's my son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was always pointing back to the Father. Um, somebody came to him and said, Good message. No, no, no. There's no one good. My goodness comes from, from him. That's the, ish, that's the way God created this relationship. And if the book Bible ended here, we'd all be in great shape. But it's not the end of the story. Chapter 3. Here comes the problem. Chapter 3. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, can you jump down to... Ch- yeah, there you go. We're going to go back to the two verses I gave you. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So we're going to see the serpents now coming in to this perfect scene. Let's go now to... Let's see who the serpent is before we understand. Let's go to Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying... Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now let me give a little explanation here of of how Old Testament prophecy works. Very often there was a dual meaning. So this is Ezekiel prophesying about the king of Tyre. Tyre. But there's there's a meaning to this that's if you step back and pull the curtain back, there's a meaning to what's going on here besides the king because he's also going to talk about Satan before he was evicted from heaven. Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say, and saying to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, and obviously the king of Tyre was not, full of wisdom. He's talking about Satan before he became Satan. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Ah, oh the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, this topaz, this guy had bling. (laughs) Topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Keep going. The workmanship of your trembles and pipes. So there's an implication here that he was musical. In fact, there's some believe that he was in charge of worship in heaven was prepared for you on the day you were created. So this is a created being. You were the anointed cherub that covers. In the Hebrew, that means he was surrounding the throne of God. This angel was an angel, was one of the inner angels, one of the archangels that had direct access to the throne of God and most likely was in charge of his worship. I, he noticed he was anointed. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God and walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That's, that's the glory of God, not stones that were on fire. They didn't have to walk the coals or things like that. It was, this was God's glory. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity 
was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, that just means his interacting with people or, or angels, you became filled with violence within. Now that's not, he wasn't hitting angels and beating them over the head with a scepter. It's evil forming in his heart. And you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17. Your heart, listen to this, your heart, remember the Bible says guard your heart? Your heart was filled up because of your beauty. Now contrast, remember this man and woman that God created, they were not aware of themselves to the point that they couldn't even see they didn't have any clothes on. This being now takes his eyes off of God, whom he's there to worship, and begin to look at his own beauty. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the stake of or because of your own splendor. The moment he took his eyes off of God and began to look at himself, everything reversed in him. And he became filled up. He began to see his wisdom and his beauty as belonging to him. Something, listen carefully, that he had a right to. We hear so much today about this group's rights and this group's rights and this group's rights. The question to ask yourself is, who gave you that right? Where did that right come from? You can't just choose a right for yourself. That's not right. (laughs) But that's what he was doing. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of because of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, to the earth. I laid you before kings that they might gaze upon you. Let's go to another verse that tells us clearly who this is. Let's go to Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, that means son of light, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You, are weak, you, have, weakened the, you have weakened the nations. Verse 13. For you have said in your heart. Now notice how many times the personal pronoun I It'll be five times in three verses, I think it is. For you have said there in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's the other angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most, most high God. I will make myself like God. You, yet you shall be brought down to shale to the lowest depths of the pit. That's the creature that we're now going to see. Now Genesis 3. Now the serpent, this is the being that has now been cast to the earth, and he chooses to enter the garden as a serpent. The serpent was more cunning, notice cunning, deceitful, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Stay there. Notice what's going on here. 
God had given them a commandment. God, who says, you don't have the ability to handle right and wrong, truth and error. I do that for you as long as you stay under my protection, my covering, which is my authority as your God. Satan, Lucifer, who is now Satan, who now his own self did this, is now going to bring what he did to God's great creation in order to spite God and to build his own kingdom here. So what does he do? He goes right to the root of the issue. He goes to the authority of God's word. And he questions it. He simply plants a little question. Remember, he's a deceiver. He's cunning. When you're a deceiver and you're cunning, what it looks like you're after is never what you're after. I've used often the example of a pickpocket. Because when a pickpocket you hits you, trying to take your wallet, he uses misdirection. He'll bump up against you one place so your attention's there while he takes what he's really after. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And here's her mistake. She answers him. You don't have to answer him. <laughs> and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden... But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, God has said, you shall not eat of it nor touch it lest you die. So she understood this. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Stay there. He's gone from a simple suggestion. Has God really said that? And now he's directly contradicting God's word. He's saying to her, God lied to you. And his motive is going to be to tell them God's keeping something from them that they have a right to. Now think, listen carefully to my words. That God's keeping something from them that they have a right to. So if that's so, then their right comes from some source other than God. Because if God didn't give them that right, and they have a right, it came from somewhere else other than God. You shall surely not die. Next verse. Look at this. For God knows something He's not telling you. He knows that the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Remember what Satan wanted it to be? He said, I will make myself like the Most High God. Now he's trying to sell that bill of goods to God's wonderful creation. God's keeping you from being like Him. So here's what you need to do. You need to take matters into your own hands and make yourself like God. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And what will make you like God? Knowing good and evil. I was meditating on this one time and I guess I'm slow to pick this up. I almost thought of doing this. But I'm sure most of you are familiar with the logo from the most popular computer manufacturing company. Their logo is an apple with a bite out of it. The bite represents man's effort to know good and evil apart from the fruit God gave them to eat. Bless you. God knows, so God's keeping some rights from you. 
God knows in the day that you eat, that doesn't mean you should throw your Apple computers out. I have an iPad, I have a laptop. But the lesson is, the foundation of all of our technology, the underlying attitude, which is truly of, of our media and our world today, is that man's knowledge is enough to govern ourselves. And all you've got to do is look at the news and see what kind of job man's doing with the knowledge of good and evil. All right, I've got to move along here. So he questions God's commandment and says, did God really say that? And now he's getting to the motive. He's saying, God is keeping some from you that you're entitled to. In other words, you have a right because you exist to be like God. Now listen carefully. This is going to come home to us. That we, you have a right to be like God. And God's rules are keeping that right away from you. Because God's expecting you to obey Him and He's trying to keep your fun away from you. God gives us things to enjoy with boundaries to protect us. So sex outside of marriage, is a, sex, sex is a gift from God within the boundaries that God has designed it, which is in the boundaries of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman made before God. Outside of it, it's just like this. It's outside of the boundaries that God created for it. And we do that because we think we're God to ourselves. It's something God's given me. So I can exercise my rights over my body the way I want to. Because it's my body. That's the attitude of the world. The problem is it's the attitude of the church. And then he said he's lied to you about the consequences of disobeying him. You're not going to die. But the result of the disobedience... Let's go on. Verse 5, 6, 7. Oh, okay, yeah, thank you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good... Notice she saw something. That it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate it. And then she gave it to Dum-Dum. I mean her husband... Notice he, was, notice he was with her. 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 He wasn't off working and came home for evening and she's, boy, do I have a dessert for you. He was with her. Nowhere in this discussion that Satan has with her does her protection open his mouth and provide a protection for her. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Now they had knowledge of good and evil, but apart from God. And they knew that they were naked. So suddenly they're aware of themselves. The root of all sin is right here itself. That's the issue going on in the world today. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves. So they, now they've messed up, so they're going to fix it themselves. So they're going to go make their own covering of their unrighteousness. It's called self. 
So the first instinct when they realize that they're separated from God and that they're exposed and vulnerable is they make their own covering to protect themselves. We're going to talk about this next week. What keeps us from obedience is the way we try to protect ourselves from it because we don't understand what it does. Verse 8. And then here it comes. Here comes the moment of reckoning. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did the next thing. They hid from the presence of God. That's what the world's doing now. They're hiding from the presence of God. Why? Because there's an inner sense of shame. And the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. And the Lord God said, called to Adam, and he said, Adam, where are you? It was not because God had no clue where they were hiding. He's asking Adam, giving him a chance to confess what he's done. Adam, where are you? And I, he said, so I, I heard the voice, your voice in the garden. Look at the next thing that happened. I was afraid. So... Self-protection, self-fear, hiding from God were all fruit of stepping outside the boundary that God had prescribed to them. And Satan said, there's no consequence to this. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We'll have to stop there. There's more we could, we could have looked at. Now man, from then on, man just has become self-centered. Everything we do or happens around us, our, natu- our natural instinct is to react to how does this affect me? What's this going to mean for me? And we're born with that. If you've ever seen a two-year-old or had a two-year-old or been a two-year-old, I think I got everybody there. Everything revolves around themselves. I remember when one of our children, I won't mention it, it's not Chris, was about 18 months old, and I'm trying to decide, God, when do do they know right from wrong? And he just said, watch them. And he was sitting, I can still see him, sitting next to the refrigerator, the kitchen, and he starts to reach to put his hand under the refrigerator where that grating is, and I said his name, and I said, no, don't don't do that. And he looks up at me and goes like this. At 18 months, he knew the difference. Now man decides what is good and evil for himself. He's made himself his own God. Now for Christians, we know God is who we believe God is. But we do the same thing. Our God, which is self... What we do is we include Jehovah God in the affairs of our life. We talk to Him, we ask for His help, we try to bring Him into the issues of our life. We will agree with Him, we will consult Him, but we don't want to submit to Him, submit to Him as the authority over our lives and His Word as the authority over our lives. And so we're doing the same thing. I put it off in this way. What man did is he tried to establish his own kingdom. 
And so what we do is we try to coexist with God. He's our resource, He's our help, He's our comforter, He's our counselor, He's all the things we need Him to do, He's, gotten, he's going to get us into heaven, all the things we need, He is our God, but we still have our own kingdom, of, that's God as His kingdom, and we have our kingdom, because in my kingdom I'm God, I decide for myself, listen carefully, whether I believe what God's word says is true or not. I decide for myself whether I have to obey what God says. How does that make me any different? than what Adam and Eve did. Now there's a great contrast to this. We'll talk about him next week or the week after. And that is Jesus. Before I do that, I want to get to something. We're running out of time. So let me make just read some statements here. These are all in my notes. You can get them online. We now decide the issues about our life and the world based on what we think is right and wrong, good and evil. So I'm going to go through some issues here. So abortion is wrong in our mind because it's killing innocent babies. Just bear with me. Racism is wrong because it's not treating people justly. Even though God may share the exact same view, we're wrong. Because the foundation of what we believe is what we think is right and what we think is wrong. What makes abortion wrong is it violates God's commandment. What makes racism and injustice wrong is it's wrong in God's eyes, not because it's wrong in my eyes. This is a very important distinction to see. Because this is what we'll learn down the road. This is where the moral authority comes from or it's lost. When we are standing up for what's right because we think it's right, we're no different in the eyes of the world than somebody that stands up for the opposite mission, and that's why we fight with each other. But these things are wrong because, but, but, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to wrestle with these difficult moral issues as if we're God and we decide what's right and wrong ourselves. Instead of saying, God, what do you say about this? I can't have an opinion on these moral issues. What do you say? Now, we'll learn down the road. We may not agree on what God says. That's different. But if we start out with, I don't, it doesn't matter what I think is right or wrong. What do you think is right or wrong? What's right or wrong to you? It's interesting. I was thinking this morning. The Ten Commandments are the foundation of God's government in the earth. But it starts with a foundational principle. Commandment number one. Notice none of these are suggestions. None of these are policies. None of these were, 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 were a, a program. None of these were solutions. They were commandments. And the very first commandment is the foundation for everything else in our relationship with each other and with God. And it's simply this, God telling us who He is. I am the Lord, the self-existent one who knows my existence to nobody and everything that exists owes its existence to me. I am the Lord and I'm in a relationship with you. I am one to be your God. And I'm the one that brought you out of, for the Israel it was Egypt, for us it's the world. I brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And all the rest of those commandments and everything else God gives us is dealing with other gods that we built into our lives before Him. And the biggest God we build into our lives goes back to Genesis 3. It's the God of self. I have my right to decide whether I'm going to do this or not. Where did you get that right from? Because if you got it yourself, you're in rebellion against the God who creates rights. One last thing quickly because we're, going, we're running late. Go to Second um, Samuel chapter 12. Background here. King David, a righteous man, loves the Lord with all his heart, but he was weak in his flesh. And he got, put himself in a situation and to shorten the story down, he has committed adultery with another man's wife, Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. And then what he did to cover it up because she found out she was pregnant. Now he can't cover it up. So what he did was he invites Uriah, one of his faithful soldiers, to come back on a, on a break and with a hope he's going to go visit his wife. And so everybody's going to think, well, Uriah came home. He had a relationship with his wife. That's where she got pregnant. But Uriah's a righteous man. He won't cooperate with David because his soldiers are out there. He's not going to go in into his house and spend the night and enjoy the presence of his wife while his other soldiers are out there. So now David's got a problem. Uriah didn't qualify. So what David does is he gives Uriah a letter to send to the commander to say, put Uriah out in front of the battle and then pull back from him so he's killed. So he basically murders, he commits adultery with his faithful soldier's wife and then arranges to have him murdered. And then in this chapter, God sends a prophet to him who tells a story. And as a result of the story, David's angry at this man who stole another man's sheep when he had a whole bunch of sheep. And so God has, has pr- confronted him with this issue. Let's go to... Um, okay. This is what God says to him now. This is how God deals with David's adultery and the murder. Notice God doesn't say you've done something wrong. God says, you have despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight. doesn't matter whatever they think. It doesn't matter what the people will think. It doesn't matter what His family would think. It doesn't matter what His other wives will think. This is what God says. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now let's look at David's response. I'm shutting, I'm cutting this all down. Let's go to verse 13. David said to Nathan, that's the prophet that God spoke through. Notice what David doesn't say. I'm sorry, I've done something wrong. Notice David doesn't just say, I've sinned. David said, I've sinned against the Lord. David said, my sin is I have broken his commandment, not that I've done something wrong. In other words, this is wrong in God's eyes, who's the only one with the knowledge of good and evil, and I have violated what he says is wrong. God did not create us to handle the knowledge of good and evil on our own. So what's the answer to the problems of the world? What's the answer to all your problems? It's one simple word, which we're going to begin to talk about. It's the word God spoke to me when I said, I can't handle all this. I don't know what to do. 
you put me in this position, you've got to come with some answer, and he gave me a one-word answer. Obedience. I thought that would go over that big. I figured I'd have you jumping around, shouting, running around, oh, oh, yeah, that's what I thought it was. I was hoping you'd say obedience. Why do we react that way? Because in our hearts, we're all still rebellious. That's why we still got problems. We don't want, I don't like the word obedience because it implies I may have to do something I don't want to do. But we're going to learn what obedience is. We're going to learn why it is so critical for us to learn to walk in obedience and we're going to learn how God helps us. His grace enables us to be obedient and to respond. So we'll begin to look at things that, defenses that we put up to avoid our disobedience. Arguments that we create are all designed to not face our own disobedience. Ways that, that I found in my own life God revealed. He said, there are issues you just don't want to look at. You want to stick your head in the sand because you don't... And I said, well, I don't know what the answer is. No, you don't want to face the answer because the answer may put pressure on you to do something or change in a way you don't want to do or you don't want to change. I'm just being honest with you. We better end this because it's getting too uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, in the times we're in right now, I heard a pastor that I respect, Robert Morris. We showed him a few years ago here. I have talk about authority and obedience. As you don't understand, God puts people in your lives in a position of authority. Not for the purpose of bossing you around, but for protection. Because the biggest trouble I see in the church today is people that are out there, and of course social media makes us, that are doing their own thing and think they're right. I have my opinion about masks and not masks. I have my opinion about the vaccine. And I have my, so I'm going to go off and form my own group. We got people doing that all the time. I'm going to form my own group, my own church, my own little Bible study. I'm going to form my own thing because I don't want to submit to somebody else. But I'm just human, like you are. But when God puts you in a position, He is a responsibility and He gives the authority, and that authority is there for our protection. That's what Adam did not provide for his wife. We're going to learn down the road that's what Jesus does provide for us. We better, we better pray. Father, as we prayed at the beginning, help us. Help us to see the truth and to face the truth. We thank you that you love us so much, Father. If you didn't love us, we would have all been burned up by now because we've all violated your commandments almost every day. But it's the goodness of God, the, for, the forbearance, the patience of God, that leads us to salvation. It's your mercy and goodness, Lord. But we need to wake up because there's so much at stake in the church taking its place and doing what you've put us here to do. You've brought each of us through many difficult times and there are many of us still going through difficult times but we're still here. You brought us through it by your faithfulness and we sing about that all the time. But Lord, we can't become comfortable in just your faithfulness. 
We must grow up and take our place and do what you put us here to do. And we ask you for the grace to see it and the grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close, I, 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 must, I must give this one invitation.